0: Welcome to Purpose and Productivity, a podcast made possible by the SkyPass Group of Companies and SkyLife Success. Join Krish Dunham, an author and speaker whose messaging has been described as the junction where God's ability and man's availability meet hope's accessibility. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Purpose and Productivity. I'm coming to you from the beautiful city of Nashville, where I arrived yesterday to do some work as part of prison fellowship and prison ministry that I've done for now 30 years, speaking to some young men who are just coming out and exploring the opportunities that exist ahead. The message we gave them was well received, and today we'll participate in some other acts of random giving to people who are disenfranchised and hurt by the change of things in the moment. In our message earlier, we talked about the cross of Jesus Christ and articulated our position on what we call the decision, exploring a past that plagued us, the present that pleads with us, and a future that we hope is pleasing to us. Today we want to continue in that same series of the cross of Jesus Christ, but Now that we have explored the decision we have to make, let's look at the direction we have to take. Some years ago, I studied the biography of Henry Martin, a missionary who went first to India where William Carey already was and then had a desire that he would stow away on a ship uh, because he was not getting the support he needed from the missionary society because he felt a call to go towards what is modern day Iran in those days, Persia. He died uh, tragically very young after having translated the New Testament into some languages, but I was quite fascinated more by what was said about Henry Martin's journey at the end. Thomas Babington Macaulay wrote the epitaph that is on Henry Martin's tomb, and it simply reads like this. Here Martin lies in manhood's early bloom. The Christian hero finds a pagan tomb. Religion sorrowing o'er her favorite son, pointing to the glorious trophies that he has won. Eternal trophies not with carnage red, not stained with tears by hapless captives shed, but trophies of the cross for that dear name through every form of danger, death, and shame. Onward he journeyed to a happier shore where danger, death, and shame assault no more. How would that be something that signifies what's written about you? How would you like something like that written about you that signifies the journey? Clinging to a cross, clinging to a name, not for the fame that comes, not for the game that is played, not for the pain that is plagued, but because of that dear name, the name of Jesus Christ, the one who liberates us. And the reason I wanted to talk about it is obviously we are going through the reason for the season. And I've always believed that while we look and celebrate Christmas with the excitement of the preparation that takes place during Advent and all the gifts that we get and the lights that are put up and the songs that are sung in the form of carols and the evangelizing that takes place as people uh, form small carol troops and go across the neighborhood and sing uh, those beautiful hymns and those anthems that, uh, I mean, I just look forward to this time of the year because even in the churches, they sing these old carols that give us the hope that there is going to be a birth, that there is going to be a savior that comes into the world because of the birth. And when we cling to the promises made by the savior, something miraculous will be happen in its life. And then the triumphant march that we would all be on our journey towards that Easter, a march that he took when he himself had to be crucified by carrying a cross. One of the stories I love is a story of a young man who was intrigued by the words that were given to him about the cross and how you all have to carry your own cross if you want to make your Christian journey worthwhile, if you want to make your messages something that actually will stand the test of time, and the plague of this planet. So he complains to God. He says, Lord, I cannot carry a cross that is big. I cannot carry a cross that is heavy. I cannot carry a cross that is cumbersome. I am but ill-equipped to do it. And the Lord just says to him, take what you have and go into the room that is next to the one you're in. And in that, they're all shapes of crosses. They're all sizes of crosses. Uh, If you don't like the one you're carrying, go into that room and explore what is available. God died for you. He hung on that cross for you. So as you make your decision on how you want to serve him, how you want to follow him, how you want to please him, where you want to please him, just walk into that room and look at all the options that exist and pick an option that works for you. He goes into this room, and uh, there are big crosses. There are crosses where you can't see where they start and where they finish. They're so humongous. There are small crosses. There are medium crosses. There are heavy crosses. There are light crosses. There are colored crosses. There are plain crosses. There are jeweled crosses. There are rustic crosses. The options are unlimited. He finally picks one that he thinks he can manage, and he looks up at the heavens and says, Lord, I think this one is the one that I can manage. And the voice comes back from heaven saying, that's the one you came in with. The beauty of that story is not that we cannot carry burdens that are bigger or that we can cross bridges that are vast or chasms that are wide. The beauty of that story is God will not give you more than you can handle. He will not ask you to carry more than can be laden on your back. He will not give you a Lord that He Himself will not first lighten. That's the beauty of the cross when you look at it as a direction. Because from that cross were made seven significant statements. One of the statements was, I thirst, that displayed His humanity. Another statement was, Woman, behold your Son, Son, behold your Mother, that displayed His mankind as he wanted to continue the relationship between the mother and child. one So one statement he made was, into your hands I commit my spirit. One statement of forgiveness he makes is to the thief on the cross, where he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But there's one statement of exasperation that is made from one of the Gospels, and the seven statements come across the four Gospels. But one of the statements made is... Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So even on the cross, that is our direction, when the Lord himself hung for the sins of humanity, when he willfully carried it those last 100 meters or so up the hill to Golgotha, as that Friday went dark, as the Lord of all hosts hung there in complete shame and abandon, there was a moment when he cried out and he believed that this pain was too much. And he looked up and he cried at the heavens and he says, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? So here are the questions we want to ask ourselves about the direction of this cross as you look at this Christmas season. And I would encourage you to listen to all three messages in their totality, in their entirety, and repeatedly as well. The cross is a decision, the cross is a direction, and then the cross is a destination, which we'll do in a couple of days. But does the truth of God point inward to change, which means to the heart that needs to sow in new frontiers? Like I said, I came to Nashville to engage in prison ministry and part of the halfway house folks that I work with, uh, leaving their names and all of that anonymous. uh, We had a pizza dinner, and then uh, I was asked to speak to the crowd for about 45 minutes. Now, a handful of them had heard me before, obviously, because I've been doing this work. For a long time but I, I so get excited to want to walk towards the Q&A session because those that were incarcerated and came out and are still young have decisions they want to make about the monetary aspect and they say, can you can you explain to me the difference between wealth and riches and uh, is it bad to want and is it bad to want more than you have? And they're talking about basic ambition that kind of comes crossroads along with the addictions or the chances and circumstances that put them there. Uh, Some of the more seasoned ones ask about how can my life and my legacy, you made a statement saying you can let your past beat you or you can let it teach you. How can my life and legacy be something you can learn? Last night as I was answering the question of one of the men, I suddenly, it dawned on me. And what dawned on me was something so simple and yet so profound. I said, when you want to make a change in your life and you want to influence, the three T's of time, talent, and treasure do come into play. But you need to give off your time and you need to give off your time willingly without expectation. You need to share of your talent and you need to share of your talent wisely uh, because of experience. Don't worry about the treasure because what you practice for may eventually pay you. But even if it doesn't pay you, you can't take your experiences with you. And as a result, uh, when I remember the statement from the cross that woman behold your son, son behold your mother, he was very adamant that the relationship mattered. Uh, so does the truth of God point inward to change? One of the questions I was asked in the Q and A session, and I know I'm going a mile a minute. One of the questions I was asked was about uh, how do you decide what is right and wrong? Now imagine these people were convicted by a jury of their peers. I was not there to give them any kind of absolution. I am not a priest where they can come and confess to me. I was not there to condone or to condemn them for their past. I was there to share with them some hope to get ahead from a standing start. So to me, this man asked a question about right and wrong, and in his idea, right and wrong is very different. Uh, If he believes that justice was served, then he believed that his wrong has been righted because of the time he gave as a penance to society for the crime he committed. If he believes that he was unjustly or unfairly targeted because he was disenfranchised and as a result of his economic situation or his socioeconomic upbringing had to go down a, par- a path of darkness, then his idea of right and wrong would be different. If he believes that justice was not served and he was incorrectly uh, uh, committed because uh, the evidence pointed towards him, but he was not guilty, then his action would be different. My message to them was attitude, behavior, and character. But I, as he asked that question, I thought to myself, where do I get my right and wrong? And I get my right and wrong as the direction that the cross takes me. And the right and wrong comes from a moral law and a moral law giver. So my answer to him was simple. I don't know if I got through to him, but my colleague who was with me just said, hey, that was an interesting question and an interesting response. I said, right and wrong that comes from a theological framework is basically the cross that directs you. This is the truth of God that points inward and asks your heart to change. When I look at the cross of Jesus Christ and when I look at the commitment on that cross and when I look at the fact that He willingly climbed on the cross so that my sins past would be forgiven, my sins future would be absolved, and my sins present would be undertaken, I began to realize that He doesn't have to die every Friday. That death was once and done, and it was enough because that blanket, that blood at Calvary covers my sins and makes me a new person. And if it makes me a new person and I look at that cross and I look at what that cross has done for me and I look at the direction of the cross, my answer to this man who asked the question of right and wrong should be very direct. So I said when I look at right and wrong through a theological foundation and a theological framework, I see something very profound and that is that there is a moral law that comes from a moral lawgiver, and that is an absolute, it's a non-negotiable and right and wrong at that point is not about my feelings but about the reality. Some years ago, Lecky wrote a book on the history of European morals from Augustus to Charlemagne and in that he talks about subjective morality and objective morality. Uh, the objective morality is uh, right and wrong is a yes and no, a black and white, a good and a bad and something that logically exists in this world and theologically is supplanted by this world. But there is a subjective morality. If my heart likes it, my head adores it, society approves it, you applaud it, and you acknowledge it, then somehow right can become wrong, and wrong can become right by a broader commentary. And I have to draw the line in the sand by saying that if you go by society's standards of uh, your own plight as an inmate, and you look at morality through the lens of how society condones it, then your definitions are going to change based on society's moods. Uh, I tell people the same thing about elections. You know, elections give us a four-year reprieve based on man's toxic relationship with the people he elects and the people he selects. But the moment you differentiate one nation under God from one nation trying to understand what God said, everything changes. So does the truth of God point inward to change the heart that sows? Does the truth of God point upward to chart? This is the head that sees. Uh, One of the statements I gave them was about behavior. I said, nobody cares about what you did except you. You can let your past beat you or you can let it teach you. No, I know you had to pay a price and society will put a stamp on your bio, so to speak, that you are a criminal and uh, granted we are part of the reformation. But your question is not to ask yourself, how are you going to circumnavigate these issues? But sometimes you're going to ask yourself the question, why? Karl Barth said, none of us can go back and make a brand new beginning, but all of us can start now and make a fantastic ending. So yesterday ended with last night. I said, today is the first day of the rest of your life. Happy birthday to you. This is something that the cross gives me as a present continuous reality. I love how John Wesley put it many years ago. When he says every day when i look at what this god has done for me i ask myself why in three different arenas why is it true why does it appear new and why is it you so why is it true why is it new and why is it you in the sense that every day can you look at the truth and ask yourself the why behind that truth as a present continuous reality Every day when you look at it and you ask yourself, why is it new? Why is there excitement when I read the scripture every day for my devotion, even though what became as a habit now is that personalization, that internalization, and that vocalization, that self-talk to me? So first is, does the truth of God point inward to warrant change, the heart that sows? Second is, does the truth of God point upward to chart a course, This is the head that sees. What now? What next? Uh, How do we make the decisions? Uh, We know people are hurting in different parts of the world. We know the grief that people are experiencing is pervasive and personal. And you cannot stand in someone who has lost a lot in terms of finances and say, I know how you feel. Because you don't. If you didn't lose that much, you don't have a clue. You can talk about the broader elements of the pandemic, but that's about where your discussion ends. What about someone who has lost a loved one, someone who is uh, dealing with the ills of separation or familial uh, obligation or pain? Uh, My mentor, Mr. Ziegler, always used to say, and I remember, I wrote about this in this book, Twilight. There's another shameless plug. But in the book, Twilight, I wrote a story about how when his daughter had passed away at the gravesite, I said, I know how you feel. What I was trying to do was a callous misrepresentation of sidling up to someone else and trying to partake in their pain, just like these inmates yesterday. I don't know how they feel. I've never been incarcerated. Now I've gone into prison for 30 years as a volunteer, but I always went in with the luxury of knowing at the end of the couple of hours of my time and uh, the giving of my talent, I would be released. But what if this person is serving 30 years as some of them did? What if they're serving 15 as some of them did? What if they are not in for just some misdemeanor, but they are in for an aggravated assault and they're a criminal and life itself, their trajectory has changed. How, what do they look upward to? How do they chart a new course for themselves? How do they find? I remember when I told Mr. Ziegler, I know how you feel. He looked at me at the graveside of the daughter he was burying and he says, remind me to tell you in a few weeks why today this statement is amongst the dumbest things you've ever said. And I thought to myself, this is my hero, my superman, cajoling me, correcting me, coercing me to make a change in my very disposition. And I thought, how rude. To myself, initially I felt, here I am trying to console him and he calling me dumb. But six weeks later, when we were in another city, he said, son, I want to explain to you why I was rash. You will never know what it is like to bury your firstborn. Having problems uh, along the way, when you have problems with your children and all that, you understand pain. You understand grief. Grief is personal. Grief is pervasive. But there is something beauty of the cross of Jesus Christ that he died for everybody. Otherwise, John 3.16 would be a lie. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever shall believe shall not perish but have life eternal. Which means whosoever is everybody. God did not just die for the ones who succeed or God did not just die for the ones who fail. He died for everyone. For God so loved the world. Well, that statement, if you flip it on its back, and I'm looking at inmates who have just come out of prison or people who are in the Reformation stage and there are 50 of them, I have to believe that God died for each of them. And when I talk to them, I have to believe that when I'm pointing them to the cross, that not only gives them that direction, the cross that gives them that decision, that God died for each of them. Because if John 3.16 says, God so loved the world... then the flip has to be true, that if there was only one person in the world, then God would have to die for them. So that's what it means to me. Does the truth of God point inward to change your heart that sows? Does the truth of God point upward to chart? This is the head that sees. And lastly, does the truth of God point forward to charge? This is the hands that serve. This was Mother Teresa. This is uh, what Mother Teresa, when, she, when people said, why do you do what you do? She said, when I see the destitute, when I see the disenfranchised, when I see the dis- diseased, when I see the desolate, and she actually articulates a story which is kind of graphic, but she said, I went to pick up a man one time who was uh, literally stuck to the asphalt because of the heat. His body was maggot ridden and he was very close to death and he did die about four hours later. But after we managed to scrape him up or the parts of him that we could gather and try to take him to our hall of dying and give him some dignity, the man looked at me and said, I have lived the life of a dog, but I'm going to die looking into the face of an angel. Those are the hands that serve. This afternoon, uh, one of the things we get to do, which we do annually, is we go and pick up supplies after we ask people what they want and the time we give. The talent we offer, but the treasure has to be specific to what their needs are. This is a very pivotal time, Christmas. A lot of people are hurting and a lot of people are are wanting. But what happens is sometimes the toy drives and all of that are we decide that we're going to give out of our excess or we're going to give out of our generosity or we're going to give out of need or we're going to give out of guilt. But we always try to give what we think that we need to offer that people need to have. Yes, we need to offer Christ and all of that. But sometimes you need to be the hands of christ because that's what the direction of the cross is Uh, we went yesterday or at least some of our advanced folks went yesterday up and down the river to the people who are disenfranchised to the people who do not have shelter the people are braving the cold the people who are become uh, who fall into the cracks of the system who either by choice or chance are experiencing misery of homelessness and shelterlessness and hunger Go to them and say, what do you need? If someone needs water, if someone needs canned good, if someone needs heat, if someone needs blankets, so what we will go today to the store is look at their list. It's just like you would prepare a list to go shopping. You have to ask them what their list is and go get something specific. These are hands that serve. So this was the message that was on my heart this morning in Nashville. The temperature is cool outside, so we'll bundle up in a little bit and try to get on to do what we do. But I wanted to give you these three messages on the cross, and I want you to listen to them over and over again and share them the best you can. We spoke about the decision, the past, the present, and the future. Today we talked about the direction. Does the truth of God point inward to change, the heart that sows? Does the truth of God point upward to chart, the head that sees? And the truth of God point forward to charge the hand that serves. And the reason this is unique to Christendom is the cross on Calvary is one where a lot of things coalesce. Evil, love, justice, mercy all collide at one place. If the worldview you're following does not offer you the things that I'm sharing with you and the hope that is generated through this symbol of the cross that Jesus humbly bore for us, I would I would encourage you to reach out to us so that you could understand more about this Jesus. I'll close with the lines of my most favorite hymn that I want me I want sung at my funeral, and I'm just going to give you the first few lines of the old rugged cross, and then God bless. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, and I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it some day for a crown. Look to God, look to the cross, and look for the hope that the cross gives us in its resurrected glory. Good luck and God bless. That concludes another episode of Purpose and Productivity with Chris Dunham, brought to you by Skylife Success. Please subscribe, rate, and visit us on the web at krishdunham.com and skylifesuccess.com, where you can find our social media links and access to additional resources. Till next time, happy learning and happy living.